God, thank you so much for the for the evening, for the time that we have to just connect with you, uh, with people all in this room and literally across the globe who are worshiping with you right now. And God, we know that you are big enough to hear it all and experience it all. And that just blows my mind. But God, you can break it down into knowing and experiencing what it is that I have to offer you right now in this place, in this moment, from my heart. And so, God, we welcome you. We recognize you here. And God, our prayer as we kick this whole moment off is just that you would be pleased with the sweet-smelling aroma of sacrifice, of praise, of lives who are pointed in your direction tonight. So God, we're listening, we're open, we're ready. We're praising you in Jesus' name. Uh, I, I was in my uh, garage this a uh, uh, couple weeks ago, actually, looking through some boxes, and I came across, uh, I came across these. Uh, these are actually called CDs. And, um, and uh, you know, what, the reason why I brought these specific ones here is because, and uh, if, if, if you were in the habit of purchasing these, you'll understand this, I believe, is that each one of these that I purchased, yay, so long ago, had one good song on them each. You ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? And you just look at that and go, what a waste. Where was iTunes when I needed it? Where I could pick and choose, right? Um, <clears throat> three years ago, a bigger waste of money. Uh, Holly and I made a purchase. We purchased a brand new mattress from a place that did no refunds and no exchanges. And for three years, and I use this word specifically, and I know what it means, I hated that mattress. I despised the mattress. The, two weeks ago, we bought a brand new one. Uh, it is amazing. We bought it, yes, with a refund and exchange policy fully intact. I'm not planning on using it at all. It is a wonderful mattress. I love it. But I look at the last three years and go, what a waste from day one. Oh, my goodness, what a waste. And before you judge me, we've all got closets or drawers or attics or garages that we have things that we just go, I can't believe, oh, what a waste, what a waste, right? And it's also very easy for us to see the waste in other people's lives, isn't it? It's like, well, you know, I mean, they, how much money do they spend eating out? I mean, come on. Or uh, I cannot believe how much money they spend on those kids for sports. Don't they know they're not good enough to get a scholarship? Or what in the world are they thinking, spending that money on the medical insurance for that schnauzer? Right. I mean, we just like we can see the waste in other people. We see the waste in our government. I mean, come on, let's get a rallying cry going. Right. OK. Yeah, we understand that. It's like, oh, what a waste you got. Uh, it was years ago, we were driving through Boston and they started the big dig. You know what I'm talking about? It's like they throw all the highways underneath downtown. I think that's going to be a great idea. It's only going to cost two billion dollars. Right. Twenty years later, the cost escalated to twenty two billion. Just a little little more. Right. Or we've got the whole. How about this? The super superconducting super collider. How about that? That was that looked like it was going to be a great idea. And and then and then it got so expensive, they wound up just ditching the whole thing and started storing styrofoam cups in it, which, you know, was OK, an option. Or my favorite one that I read recently was San Jose, California, where what they decided to do is put in a pizza vending machine in the cafeteria in the high school. 
So they put the pizza vending machine in, thinking this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's going to be fantastic, right? The machine cost $720,000, right? It kept breaking down, kept breaking down, kept breaking down. They did a cost analysis, figured that they put, that, that it actually produced 2,000 pizzas before it just completely went kaput. I don't know whether, you know, I don't know whether cheese started oozing out of it. I don't know what happened, but the bottom line is they figured it cost about $360 a pizza. Right before it found. I mean, we waste everywhere. I'm going to stop now because you'll just stop listening. You know, you'll just like turn your brain off. I can't handle this anymore. Waste. It's everywhere. Check this out. We say those words. What a waste. We're going to find those words right here in this scripture. Chapter 14, the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is about to be on trial and then crucified. And in the first two verses, we uncover conspiracy. These events are taking place prior, the week prior to Passover. And during that week, it's very interesting what was happening in Jerusalem because Jerusalem typically would have about 50,000 people in it. But during the week prior to Passover, it would escalate. It would balloon up to like quarter of a million people. Right. And so there's celebration going on. There's 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 a lot of things happening in the city. But you know what else is happening? There are demonstrations and riots. Happens every year. Why? Well, because what is Passover? Ultimately, it's what they're celebrating. What happened whenever they were freed from captivity from the Egyptians? Right. Their their minds are going back to that moment. And yet, where are they? Once again, they are at the hand of a foreign government. They are under that foreign government. And so nationalistic passions are fueled and flaming at this time every year. So Roman officials work together with the chief priest to try to keep everything padded down to make sure that things don't flare up too much and everything is kept in check. And this background helps us make sense of the first two verses. Chapter one, I mean, chapter 14, verse one. After two days, it was the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priest and the scribes were looking for a treacherous way to arrest and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, or there may be rioting among the people. They didn't want to give the people one more reason to get all crazy. So plans are delayed for now. But these verses Set the stage for what's to come. Later in the chapter, this ultimate betrayal. Let's read on. Verse 3. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany, which would basically be like Flower Mound, right? Of Dallas. Uh, it's the suburb of Jerusalem. He's at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease. Emphasis on the word had. He had been healed. He is known in other translations or in, yeah, in other translations we look at as Simon the leper, which, again, emphasizes to me the importance of the nickname because they stick. Right. I mean, this dude was healed. It's just me. It's just my warped mind. But I'm just thinking, why did he have to keep being called Simon the leper? I don't know. Why not Simon the healed? Simon, I'm feeling much better. Simon, everything's reattached. I don't know. But he's Simon the leper. And so in this in this moment, he's hanging out here. Friends over, Jesus is here, Jesus is reclining at the table, and a woman came with an alabaster jar of pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard. It's in an alabaster jar. Tradition says they put it in alabaster jars to really retain and preserve the aroma. 
Uh, these jars were not made by GLAD. Okay, they were not resealable. They actually were permanently put into the jar so that then the only way that you're going to get the stuff out is to break it open at the neck. So they would break it open, and when you did that, you better have big plans for what you're going to use it for because it all winds up being used. It's all exposed. This is a one-time container. Moving on. This container is also... in. It's, it's, it's contents are not cheap. They are very expensive. As a matter of fact, what the verses indicate is that it's probably worth about a year's worth of wages. And she breaks the jar and pours it on Jesus' head. And this, again, is difficult for us to understand because Ms. Manners would not really recommend you taking oil and dumping it on somebody's head at a dinner. Unless maybe you're like at our house with lots of children and then all of a sudden, you know, all bets are off. But this lady who is unnamed actually is named in the other gospel narratives. She is Mary. She is the sister of Lazarus with once again in my warped mind. They didn't call Lazarus Lazarus the deceased. I still feel sorry for Simon. OK, moving on. But he's there. And Mary anoints Jesus with this oil. All of it. And as we are about to see, to almost everyone in the room, this action looks wasteful. Here's what we know. Mary's actions are really a worshipful response to who Jesus was to her. Maybe it was because, in a very personal way, he had touched her deeply. Maybe it was because, maybe, and I think this is quite probable, she was just excited to have her brother with her again. And this was just a sign of gratitude that Lazarus is actually able to hang out at the house. In the Old Testament, why was anointing happening? It was happening primarily because of anointing kings or anointing priests or anointing prophets. But you move into the New Testament and what you find is anointing becomes much more commonplace. It would occur at times of celebration. It would occur at family gatherings. It would occur in moments of gratitude and blessing. So whatever fueled it, here's what we know. We know that it was a very personal emphasis on the word personal, personal response of Mary. It wasn't a detached moment where we see someone just kind of going through the motions. This wasn't a response born out of some manipulation by Jesus and the disciples. Okay, now everybody gets five minutes to blank. No, no, no. This was a very personal not detached, but a very personal moment with Mary. It was also extravagant. I mean, she held nothing back, right? She didn't bring along with the flask a bunch of measuring cups. I got a lot of anointing to do. You know, I got this much that I'm going to give you, Jesus. It wasn't calculated. It was extravagant. She gave it all. It was also sacrificial and selfless. Uh, she did not hold a press conference ahead of time and go, excuse me, everyone, I'm about to do something huge. Hope you saw the mailer. There's a lot at stake here. I'm about to give a ton of oil in this anointing. Get ready. Right. She did not call a press conference. It was selfless. It was private. It was in this moment. It was sacrificial. It was not about her. It was about him. It was not about her. It was about Christ. 
I'm afraid that sometimes in our worship, rather than it being real personal, it becomes detached. We just come in and it's not about what Christ is doing in me. It's me just kind of going through the motions. I've been there. I understand that. I think sometimes in our worship of Him in our life, it's, it's, it's not, it's far more calculated than it is extravagant. Because you know what? God, you see my cell phone, you see my calendar, you know what my week looks like, and so in a calculated move, I give you this hour, and I should get brownie points because it is Sunday morning of time change. God, calculating you in. It takes an effort, but I do it. You know what? It becomes more calculated and extravagant. I think sometimes my worship can get way more selfish than selfless. I I wish they would not do that song. I just don't like it when they do that song. Where is Ron? Who gave him permission to be on vacation? Who is this joker? What is going on here? What? What do you mean somebody else come into my small group? Are you kidding me? I don't need any more needy people in my group. I'm happy with the way my small group is right now. It meets my needs because, you know, my small group is all about me. We don't want to step on any toes. I think so often our worship can just get so selfish and self-absorbed. And detached and calculated. And Mary's response to him was personal and extravagant and sacrificial. But some, they didn't see it that way. Verse 4. Some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this fragrant oil been wasted? For this oil might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. It wasn't just that they were like murmuring. They began to rip into her in this moment. And let's remind ourselves of who's in the house. It's not a house full of Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and Roman officials. This is the inner circle of Jesus There are disciples and family members and close friends, and they are hanging out for this intimate dining experience. And the environment turns hostile. I was, (laughs) those of you who who, who don't know, which most of you probably would not, but there's uh, there's a, a friend of mine here that goes to the church, and we've actually been friends our entire life. As a matter of fact, we grew up together. We were best friends growing up. I didn't even know he was a part of the church until after I'd already told Ron, yes, I'll come on staff, because uh, we had kind of become a little detached as far as I didn't know where he was worshiping in the Metroplex at the time. His name's Jeff Tasker. And Jeff and I were just best buds growing up, right? And we were about nine or ten years old in a sanctuary roughly about this size, sitting right back there, I'll never forget it, right back there about three rows from the back, away from our parents, and the pastor was preaching in our little church that we were a part of, and can I just tell you what happened? What happened was Jeff had brought in this can of marbles, about a hundred marbles in this can, and there was a crisscross pattern, and you see where I'm going with this already, you're already smiling, yeah, I don't have to tell you the story, right? And so this crisscross pattern on the on the pew, and so we were playing like tic-tac-toe, you know, you know, just kind of games right there on the seat cushion, having a good time, and finally he kind of said, was 
was bored with it or whatever, and I just wanted to keep on playing. And I remember him saying, make sure you don't uh, spill those over. And I'm like, no, no problem, no problem. I put them all back in the jar, and I kicked it with my foot, and the, all the marbles just started rolling. And, and our church was at a, at a tilt like this, and, and it wasn't carpet. It was like linoleum flooring. And so you just heard all of these marbles. They just started rolling down the aisle. And we were sitting in, behind the senior adults in this section right over here. And I kid you not, I remember vividly, it was yesterday, these senior adult ladies looking down like this as the marbles started rolling down between, you know, and, and like the pastor has stopped at this point, and he hears this this, this roar. And, 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 and worst part of it all is that the altar area, you know, there wasn't linoleum there. No, 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 there was carpet with the metal little thing right there and so you just heard and our parents were sitting right over here right about where you are and I remember them looking and just like you're going to die you will die for this in that in that moment much like this moment that we just saw in chapter 14 is a worshipful moment, but it turned into a gripe session. It was a beautiful moment, but their harsh words to this lady were as mood altering as those marbles hitting up against the metal. In, in, in Karen Maine's book, Making Sunday Special, she suggests preparing our heart for worship. Uh, connecting with Jesus even prior to us coming into corporate worship so that we can really have ourselves ready for what he wants to do in that moment. Uh, you can take that even further. Uh, connecting with Jesus in conversation before we enter certain conversations in our home. Have you ever been a part of a relational conflict that you look back on it and go, wow, you know what, if I had just gotten Jesus' thoughts about that first. <laughs> right? I mean, we're all there. I mean, put our kids in that moment, put our spouse in that moment, put our employees or our employer in that moment. We've all been there. And it was like ridiculous, useless, worthless conflict that occurred. Why? Because I didn't invite Jesus into the moment. Can I just tell you, these friends and family are wishing right now that they had brought Jesus into the moment first. That they had thought about what he was thinking. They didn't. Verse 6, then Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Here's a, here's a real Jesus for you right here. All right. She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you don't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. I assure you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. We've seen Mary's response. We've seen the crowd that has assembled in the house. We've seen their response. What's in Jesus' response? One of the things I see really loud and clear in this response is Jesus' affirmation. I mean, she has just been blasted by her friends and her family. And Jesus basically verbally comes in and picks her back up off the ground. Mary, I'm going to use this private act of your humble heart in billions and billions of people's lives all around the globe to the end of time. What? This was a private moment. This was unadvertised. This is a selfless act. The humble, exalted. So I don't know about you, but if you came in this morning feeling beat down or persecuted or discouraged today, can I just tell you that the Son of God wants to speak words of affirmation to you this morning. 
Maybe what he wants to do is whisper in your ear, keep going. You're on the right track. You stood for truth. You got ripped for it. You've been walking that track and you feel like you're the only one. Can I just tell you right now that Jesus is whispering in your ear, I am your biggest cheerleader. Keep going. Because in that room, can I just tell you that it wasn't the amount that it cost of the perfume that was what made it worth it. It wasn't the crowd's response that made it worth it or not. It was Jesus' response that made it worth it. It was Jesus' response that made it not wasteful. What does he think about me? He's our biggest cheerleader. Saying, you go, you go. His response was also corrective. Obviously, to the crowd, he's going, what were you guys thinking? Leave her alone. I hope that what happens this week is that I am responsive to God when he wants to step into my life like he did with his friends and say that to me. Because you know what? I get it wrong a whole lot more than I get it right. And I hope that what happens this week is that in the life of Randy, at least, I give myself the best shot possible of listening to him. So that I've got the best shot possible of exalting the Savior. His response also showed he was capable of seeing the big picture. Two, two thoughts here. First, he showed that he really did understand the plight of the poor. He, he, he did. I, I think the church today can get so caught up in promoting a social gospel that we miss the point. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Randy? I think sometimes we can get so caught up in the social concerns that are pushed and pushed and pushed. And we can give a million meals in a year and not look any different than a thousand humanitarian organizations across the globe. Really? Why is it so significant that we connect with Feed the Hunger? Maybe because it's not just about them connecting kids with a physical need, but also with a spiritual need. I think what Jesus does in, in this moment is that he helps us see that really it's bigger. It's, it's bigger. We can get so caught up in just dealing with social concerns. And you know what? We can make it look like it's really all about them. And really it becomes all about us. It's making me feel better. It's making me feel better about the world, that I'm doing something, that I'm alleviating something. And you know what? It, it can become very selfish real fast. It, it can and it becomes about us and about what we've done as opposed to who he is and what he's done. But Jesus is saying, okay, I, I'm not forgetting the needs of the poor. I mean, after all, you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, how is Jesus described? He was poor. And if you've been tracking with us over the last six or seven years, what have you seen? You've seen that Jesus was consistently for three and a half years stepping into poor, challenging marginalized, hurting people and situations. He understood that. His whole ministry was built on that when he was walking this earth. But he was expressing this higher principle that was at stake here. Because you know what? Here's, here's what's crazy. You ever think about this? Simon, the leper, eventually died. And Lazarus, the resurrected, eventually wasn't resurrected again. Because healing moments and resuscitation moments 
pointed to something bigger. It pointed to a message of a creator that has just said, your relationship with me can be restored, that reconciliation can occur, that God can be and should be glorified as we come back together with him. That's why Jesus did those things. It's a bigger purpose. He knew it. He was aware of it. I think the second way Jesus saw this uh, bigger picture, and this just kind of blew me away this week as I was reading through some of the commentary on this. Uh, Jesus, uh, he, he recognized the cross was coming. And what's interesting is he recognized it in a really graphic detail. So well, how is that possible? Well, see what he said to Mary. He says, this is an important moment because what Mary's done is she has what? She has prepared my body for burial. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Okay, well, I just kind of gloss over that. Well, yeah, it's kind of significant. Okay, what well, means a lot, did it? Okay, whatever. This one commentator I was reading said that when Jesus' body actually was pulled down off of the cross and, and, and they were preparing it, when you look at the elements that they used, you know what those elements were used for? They were used to uh, 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 reduce the stench of death and to slow decomposition. But you know what elements they were not using? They were not using elements for anointing. Why? Because they didn't anoint dead people that were in poor standing with the state. You know what Jesus knew? He knew in that moment, a week before, that he was going to be tried and unjustly condemned and put on a cross as a criminal. And this was the anointing he was going to get. If he was going to get one, it was going to come right now. And it was special and it was amazing and it was pleasing to him. And it was bigger than what anybody else could possibly have known in the room, even Mary. Because you know what? It takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. Because what Mary was doing was, she was saying, I, in this act, although she didn't even realize it, I am anointing the king of kings, the priest of priests, the prophet of prophets. I am anointing the son of the living God. Jesus saw the big picture. And he was pleased. Verse 10, and Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to hand him over to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him silver. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. What we know from the other accounts in the Gospels is that Judas was a primary voice in the ripping of Mary. Why? He was the treasurer of the group. And reality is that his opposition to Mary wasting the oil on Jesus had very little to do with the poor and much more to do with the lost opportunity of being able to embezzle some of the funds off of the top once the oil was sold, you see. His interests were for himself, so angered. What does he do? He goes, this is the last straw. I'm out of here. Which takes us back to verse 1. Because Judas then goes and inserts himself into the conspiracy. A place that is fertile for options. And Judas gives them an opportunity to avoid a riot. To pick the right time to hand Jesus over. And they were delighted. And they sealed the deal with money. Which is what really meant the most to Judas. And in this moment... We find the dichotomy, right? We find 
Mary wasting on Jesus what really is not a waste at all. And we also find a life that was in Jesus' inner circle the whole time and yet not in love with him. And eventually, what happens? Matthew 27, verse 5, Judas throws the silver into the sanctuary and departs. And he goes out and he hangs himself. Judas' response, ultimately, a wasted life. Judas handed Jesus over in order to make a buck. And we think, well, Judas, how in the world could you have done that? I mean, really? I mean, you were right there with him. You were hanging out with him every day. Yet we hand Jesus over for all kinds of things, for all kinds of reasons. We choose grades over Jesus or career moves over Jesus or uh, finagling illegal tax returns over Jesus or paying the, taking the easy way out of relationships over Jesus or busyness over Jesus or not rocking the boat over Jesus. There's a million different ways that we hand Jesus over. And, and maybe, as, as we close, maybe one of the thoughts that we can end with this morning is just asking ourselves this question. How is it this week that I become tempted to hand Jesus over? Where's that happened in my life? But I think Judas' waste not only gives us a good picture of how we can enter this week, I think Mary's wasteful extravagance gives us some good insight too. Mary's wasteful extravagance was valued because why? Because Jesus valued it. I, I really like the way that the HCSB puts this verse, Proverbs 3.6, it says, think about him in all your ways. When, when I'm going through all my ways, all my ways means all my ways. That means everything I'm doing. As I'm going about what I do, I am thinking about him. I'm thinking, what is he thinking? What is he about? What, is, what are his thoughts before I take another step? What, what's he thinking about this? And as I do that, what's the rest of the verse? It says, and he's going to guide me on the right path. So this week, what would it look like if my actions and my reactions were framed not by my own selfishness, but by what Christ values? He defines what is waste and what isn't. In my time and in my money, and it's not the crowd. It's not my past. It's not even my church. He defines what is waste and what isn't. Because he sees the bigger picture. He sees my heart. He knew what was in Mary's heart. And I think what he saw in Mary's heart was actually the heart of the Father. I was drawn this week to the parable of the sower. And we've read that parable a bunch of times, right? Um, let's look at it one more time. A sower went out to sow seed. As he was sowing, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds... Uh, and the birds of the sky ate it up. Other seed fell on the rock. When it sprang up, it withered since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground. When it sprang up, it produced a crop a hundred times what was sown. And I was reading it and it hit me. I think just about every time I read that, where, where, where is my attention drawn? At where the seed goes. 
And, and what is that? Am, am I a thorn? Am I a this? Am I a that? You know, who are these people? What's happening to this seed? Look, look at all these places that it's going. What does all this mean? What's the, what's the background for this? And God just slammed me this week and he's like, listen, what I want you to get out of this parable is the heart of the sower. Because if you look, what is he doing? He is absolutely extravagant with the seed. It's going everywhere. It's going to places that are going to receive it. It's going to places that aren't. That seed is going all over the place. The heart of the sower is that that seed is just supposed to go. And my thought was, wow, I am so thankful that I serve a Savior who is extravagant with His grace and mercy and love and faithfulness and forgiveness to me. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus was so very touched by Mary's response because her heart resembled the extravagant love of his father. Will you bow with me? Maybe you would just ask God the question this morning. God, Will you show me what I've wasted for you? What I've wasted for you that, that mattered? Have we been extravagant in our service? In our sacrifice? With our time? With our money? With our talent? Have I been extravagant with my grace? With God's love and forgiveness for my kids? Have I been extravagant to them? Have I been extravagant to my enemies? Has my grace, has my service, has my giving, has my time been calculated? Or has it been liberal? Has it resembled the heart of Judas? Or has it resembled the heart of Mary who resembled the heart of the Father? This week, God, will you just impress on us what it might look like if we were extravagantly wasteful with your love.